for the evening talk is the spirituality of organizing. In this talk with you this evening, I would like to explore a little bit with you the relationship and sometimes quite difficult one of the state of living in this world, both as an individual and as a collective, and what it means for our life in terms of bringing spiritual awarenesses into situations where a certain expressions and forms of organizing are necessary. And as we have seen today, given, of course, the weekend that we have, Heal the Earth weekend, in the, uh, some of the small groups, there has been concern expressed about dealing with situations in a meditative and conscious way, and how even where one is in relationship and contact with like-minded people, there can emerge out of that dispute, conflict, tension, and sometimes disappointment and withdrawal. And so the exploration of our, of our life and the condition of our life and the condition of the life of those who are living in close proximity, I feel does need to be an ongoing process. The exploration of our life and, and the exploration of our life in relationship to the lives of others. And the, the interconnectedness of those two sets of circumstances. So if we just take for a moment our life as a so-called uh, individual, in that we have the actualities of our present, of the relationship to our present, but also, of course, we do have the influences, some of which are beneficial and some are not, the influences of the past in the present. And in any kind of committed work to whoever or whatever that commitment is in, there may be, as there are for people here, certain qualities and levels of skills and expertise which is applied to the situation. And that application of what one knows and sees, has learnt from the past and understands in the present, is put into situations. And one's heart's wish and uh, motivation, hopefully is such that that's an essential motivation. Sometimes, of course, there are offshoots of that. The offshoots of that can be uh, financial reward, uh, status, um, privilege, getting the um, acknowledgement and uh, credit and embellishment from other people about what one is doing. So sometimes in our looking at ourselves and in the relationship to our activities in life, the looking deeply into ourselves looks into some of the intentions being as, not easy, but being as clear as possible and being acutely aware and conscious of those intentions which lend itself to dependency, which lend itself to easily becoming the kind of mainstream of the reason for what one is doing in one's life the money, the status, the, the privilege, the um, affirmation from others, both immediate and sometimes, if one is more ambitious, on some kind of global scale. And so we're looking at the, at the, those unsatisfactory past influences is a vital factor in our relationship to our life. In that, when we are organizing our activity and we're putting our attention into it, if one is skillful, if one is working so-called well, if people are expressing appreciation for what one is doing, what's going to be the result? The result is they'll say, ah, oh, this person's so good. This person really knows their stuff, whatever it might be. 
and from others will come the invitation to do more. So sometimes the success factor begins to work against oneself because one feels, oh, I can do more. One begins to take on board more and more and eventually conflict in relationship has to occur. The pressures from outside, almost magnetic-like, coming to oneself. One feeling, feeling of going from being successful at something to the state of mind which sometimes gets summarized as, I just can't cope with this or with myself or with them any longer. So, in the pleasantness of success, in the feeling of doing good and doing it right, without wisdom can be the invitation for disaster. The better one is, the more the world will indirectly and directly will say, oh good, take on more, take on more. Sometimes in our relationship, and, then, and we may have to look at this in our home life, we may and in our working or, or study life, that one of the primary preoccupations that we have in our work or home life is the, one of the most frequent syndromes in our society is the movement to do to get things done. And this is like a, a, a strain which runs through the patterns and consciousness of doing to get it over with, doing to get it complete, to get it out of the way. And of course, the moment one thing is finished, it's the immediate invitation for something new arises. So our life is, is spent, if not wasted, on this preoccupation to get things over and out of the way. If, that, if we look at ourselves and say, yeah, I see that in myself, I look at that in myself, sometimes that shows itself in organizing. There's always tons of things to organize. There's always sometimes pleasure in organizing, especially other people's lives rather than our own. <laughs> and we generate this organizing mind, this organizing mentality. Sometimes, to take it to ourselves for a moment, the organizing mode of mind is that we put a priority on achieving, on getting things, the important word here, things, we're getting things done, getting issues done, getting the information put out. But to the degree that you and I are preoccupied with that, to the, is frequently to the degree that we neglect the human factor that our concepts and our ideas and, and our ideology, no matter how spiritually, politically, economically, globally, socially correct it might be, the ideology of the movement of getting things done and getting the information out or collected or whatever, so frequently is at the expense of human relationships. And this is where the ideologues, the, correct, cor the politically or spiritually correct ideologues are behaving no different from the very people that one is endeavouring to criticise, if not bring to a total, total state of collapse. So, what happens is that when the human factor, the human relationship, and often more basically feelings, when the feelings are neglected in cooperation in, in the spiritual life, what happens for us is that, that be the fabric, the, 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 the ground spring of which, from which action comes, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And more and more pressure is put on other people or on ourselves to do more and more and more. And then we wonder why people are so pissed off with us. We wonder why, why, we wonder why they finish on Friday, and they never return on Monday. <laughs> and certainly not on Saturday. So, 
That's because the ideology is beginning to matter more than the human relationships. So, so in the spirituality of organizing, a, a sense of vision has to include and embrace in a, in a sensitive way the people that we work with. Are we in our relationship to people, do those, the quality of those people's lives matter as much as the ideology which we profess? And I think there is a great deal to be done in our own life, in our own relationships and awarenesses, in the relationships and awarenesses to the groups, organizations, committees, faculties, or whatever that we work with to really address those issues. And sometimes that means that if the action is so full and the neglect is equally great, sometimes it means we do less because human beings function, I think, much more effectively and certainly much more on the long term when each human being feels happy and content and supported. When human beings don't feel like that and they feel it's just a job and, and there's no mutual love and affection and fun and enjoyment taking place in it, people stress, burn out and say, forget it, it's not worth it. And you and I know in, when we look at our own situations, work, study, exploration situations, how the number of people who can't cope with it. So that may be in the short term, it may put us inwardly in touch with the feeling of doing less. And it might well be that we are doing less in, in productive terms. But I think doing less and, and human relationship gives the opportunity much more for the long-term view. This is in work of service to other human beings. It doesn't, it doesn't end when we are 65 and we go into some kind of uh, retirement or siphon off to one of these... Uh, uh, elderly people's homes or whatever. It's service to humanity, is service all the way through to the very last in and out breath of our life. And, and I think that long-term vision and, and view of things is, is just so important. Otherwise, we with the service, we forget the, uh, the sir and it ends up as just one big vice. <laughs> and, and we're all kind of struggling, uh, struggling away in, in the side of it. Then sometimes when we look at the situation, and I think this is where spirituality, and the spirituality of organizing, has a very profound message. And it's so, it goes so much against the, often the mainstream of thinking. And what I have in mind here is the frequent thought which arises is that in order to be effective, I need more knowledge. Knowledge is the key. And we have been educated into this thought as being the central thought. So much so that the acquisition of knowledge has such a momentous force in our life that it creates the need for increasing degrees of specialization. And one only has to take any particular field of knowledge to see that that knowledge then breaks down because there's so much of it, we're drowning in the knowledge, that we have to have specialize and specialize and specialize. And one only has to, uh, you know, have more, far more examples than I. Just take the body and medicine as an example. And it won't be long before we have the specialist whose total concentration is on the front left tooth. And it's what's going on with that. It's, it's going that way. Give us a few, a few more years and we'll be down to the cutting of the left toenail. <laughs> so there's this kind of momentum which builds up, and certainly the wonder and the liberation of knowledge is of great resource, no question. 
great value and immensely supportive, but related to what? That's the question. Knowledge by itself in the various forms that knowledge is available, I think, can be as great a burden as it is an asset because knowledge has no self-existence. It exists only in relationship to a human being. The human being, the knowledge exists with the human being, and the human being matters. And we have made knowledge matter and made the human being subservient to the knowledge. And this is a tragedy, a tragedy for humanity. And all the consequences of this. And look at the despair, the suicides, the drugs, the alcohol in our colleges, high schools and u universities. Look at the unrest amongst the faculties. Look at the pressure. Look at the number of people who... Somebody said today, I'll finish off paying my student loans when I'm 63. <laughs> look, at, look at the situation which, which, in which we have elevated and, and made knowledge God. And the human being has, has, has been made the servant of this, of this uh, nightmare of a god. So I say, isn't it, yes, knowledge is useful, study is useful, learning is useful, being qualified and skillful is useful. But don't let's deceive ourselves. Don't think that knowledge is the answer. So when we're talking about the spirituality of things, with the knowledge, we think of the knowledge as the mode of doing. And in that mode of doing, we generate our knowledge, we put it out in the world, and wonderful and beautiful it is to do that. But where is it coming from? Where actually is it coming from? What's it kind of mixed in or related with? So spiritual life has traditionally and in contemporary forms, certainly the deeper forms, says doing matters, but doing has to be related to being. And when we're speaking of being, I th I th that sense of meditative awareness, that contemplation on life, that being able to look respectfully and totally at a situation prior to the doing, prior to the doing. And sometimes one sees, as one person pointed out today, as two people pointed out, in, in hospice work, a very uh, clear example, all the knowledge can be useful in a specific situation. But frequently, what the person who is, who is in those large, last stages of her or his life is actually saying, what I really need is presence. What I ne really need is, is your being here with total attention for me. And it's got nothing to do so much with the doing. It's the sense of presence. And when we're talking of presence and giving our presence, the fullness of our presence, the sense of that, the beingness of that, that communicates beautifully to humanity. And we begin to feel that kind of deeper empathy with the rocks and with the earth, the trees and the flowers. We begin to feel that empathy with those human beings who know that being and presence truly matters. So sometimes when we are a bit preoccupied with, I don't know enough, I haven't got enough knowledge, or we're preoccupied with using our knowledge to get our own way. It might be very important for us to be able to stop in the spirituality of organizing, to be able to stop and say, but what about presence? What does it mean to be totally present for this group, for this situation, for this meeting, for this particular person, for this work or whatever? In the exploration of these things, in our looking at knowledge and its relationship to being and presence, part of the function of meditation is that, in a way, it's very much a non-doing. And that's where sitting, and just sitting on the earth, 
sitting with ourselves and just feeling the life and the sense of life without actually doing anything. And something begins to happen which is not of the brain. And it's not of, of something that we can quite comprehend with our brain cells, but something goes on in the form of stillness, in the form of walking very slowly and mindfully and consciousness, consciously, which affects the mind, which does something to it, which, we, which our thought can't quite explain. And as one person said, said to me, a person who came, a friend of ours, who came regularly uh, on retreats, she was uh, uh, dying of uh, cancer and has uh, since died, and she, she said once in one of the group meetings, she said, I come on retreats, and she said, my mind can't understand why on earth I would want to come in these situations. And you've probably all had this uh, thought all day. <laughs> and, I'm, and no doubt Cape Cod seems infinitely more attractive than having a relationship with one's knees. But uh, how... And she said that in the situation that she comes in, she said she's no idea what it means to concentrate, what it is to be mindful, she said, she's been doing this all over the years, and she said, all that her memory says is that every single sitting, every single walking period, it's been nothing but distraction, wandering mind, chattering mind, and she said, that's all I know. She says, I hear what you teachers of saying, about be aware and let go of thought and don't indulge in a chattering mind. She says, my mind doesn't take any notice of any of that. <laughs> From beginning right through to end, all it knows is chit-chat, 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 <laughs> chit-chat, chit-chat. And yet, she said, in spite of that, my, what my brain only seems to know, and has never had any profound, any deep experiences or whatever, something goes on which affects my way of being in this world. So it's like with us, there's these levels of organized mind and disorganized mind and our preoccupations with that. But I think there are other, these deeper levels of ourself which even if we don't feel access to in the moment, in the silences of things, in the stillnesses of things, in the nature of things, something else can be moving and which we can be responding to. One of the things in the spirituality of organizing, either in one's own life or in the life around, and I think the, which I think is very, very important for us to address and to be aware of, both in ourselves and with others, and that is the element of fear. You know, I regard, some people have a view that fear is um, uh, acceptable, that it's, we can't be liberated from fear, that fear is a part of life, that we need fear, or whatever. I uh, don't subscribe to that view uh, at all, and, and feel we have the opportunity for liberation from, from fear, and to be able to respond with wisdom and with intelligence to events, and not fearfully. Now what often happens, and I hear this regularly in the, in the organizing mode, but either personal or uh, in organizations, is that the element of fear begins to play a part. That element of fear may not be felt as a sensation. It's not that like walking, like some of you today, coming out of um, IMS, it's... Uh, uh, as you know, the street outside is called uh, Pleasant uh, Street, and I think it's about time IMS tried to get it renamed as Unpleasant Street, <laughs> and walk, because sometimes people are going through so much walking down that street, so sometimes there is this dog on the lead <laughs> down, down there, and this dog is one of the most talked about events at IMS. <laughs> Not much else to talk about, really. Anyway, there's... So there is this dog down there, 
and there, when the dog makes its uh, charge for, your, for the jugular, <laughs> you know, it does tend with a few people to stimulate a few sensations. And we would, might describe these sensations as feeling of fear. <laughs> and with that, the fear sensation is there and the thoughts are there as well. <laughs> Usually, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> But in other situations, the thoughts can be arising. There's no distinct sensation, but the mode of relationship is coming out of fear. One of the most common ones, and of course, is, is in organization, the fear that it will go under. The fear that one will go bankrupt. The fear which drives one to more thinking in terms of um, profit and expansion taking on um, the market economy models, taking on the corporate models, and so forth. And easily, not saying always, but easily, the, ac the, the expression of that is that there is fear. And the fear is moving the organization or the powers to be within it in a particular direction. And this <coughs> is happening a lot, and it's happening a lot in many service organizations, in, in charitable organizations, and though the sensation of fear may not be at work, the language, the communication reveals it. So if one says, let's have trust, let's explore another way and not be coming out of a state of fear. If one does, if one starts looking from the standpoint of the spirituality of organizing, which means faith in the action and trusting in that, in, in those kind of commitments. If one has that, one has to be realistic. The realistic aspect of it is there are no guarantees of continuity. So sometimes when we, when we say, let's have faith in a situation and stay with it through that in some area of organizing, it doesn't mean to say that it's therefore I've got faith We'll keep with our principles, we'll keep with the values, we won't sacrifice those. It may mean discontinuity, finish, liquidation. And, and, and therefore, in keeping faith, the keeping faith with things and, and all the challenge which goes along with that does mean that there's a, an ongoing exploration. I personally, and I know others of you do in talking, talking with you, rather keep faith with the principles and the expression of those and keep working those. Rather keep faith with grassroots commitments of people th than just make everything subservient to the money market. And it's not easy to do. And it's especially, especially difficult in these times that we are, we are living in. And sometimes things do go under, no question. Even the best of work does get snuffed out, but it's a kind of faith that even when that does happen, that out of it will emerge something fresh and something new. And therefore, we don't have to become servants of the, of the market economy. Sometimes when we look at ourselves and in our relationship to the, the spirituality of organizing and the uh, kind of work you know, in which we are involved, the other aspects of it include, our, as I mentioned, the relationship that we have to ourselves. And I think what does happens frequently, which we don't realize, is that the way we relate to our immediate life our home life, our personal relationships, they very easily get generated into the work of action. So sometimes, when we are blaming others for the way he, she, or they are, the, there may be accuracy in the criticism. Understand? We may, may say, he is like this, she is like this, they are doing this, and in that criticism, it may be fair enough. But if the criticism is there with the blaming mode, 
It may be saying something about the other person, but if the blaming mode is at work, it, I feel it equally has to be saying something about oneself. So that the vitality of spirituality is that a critical outlook is an imperative. We have to be down to earth and, and realistic and idealistic simultaneously. But certainly in being critical there, when these other patterns are being fed into, and there's hostility, negativity, resentment, and those forms of agitation, I think we have some looking to do at ourselves. We really have to listen to ourselves. Because if we don't, we are feeding right into the process what we are criticizing. What, sorry, what we are blaming. You understand? If, if we come in and we throw our stuff into the organization, our hostility, our resentment, our negativity, and we put that in, we are feeding it. And we are feeding it under the same naive belief, I am right, they are wrong. And we, we get so utterly convinced of our rightness, of our self-righteousness, that we use that ideology of self-rightness to keep pointing the blame and keep pointing the finger. Instead of understanding in any situation which you and I are involved in, whatever the situation, because of the codependent factors, we're all in it together. We all generate the situation. And it takes some exploration to an understanding of ourselves to know what is criticism, what is feedback, what is encouragement and exploration, and what simply we cannot tolerate circumstances and we're using it to throw our unresolved, misunderstood stuff onto the situation to keep it fueled. Sometimes, again, many, many, of course, countless aspects of this, and I, in the talk with you, I just uh, raise questions for our reflections and in our looking at. One of the things in spiritual teachings, and to its credit in the Buddhist uh, tradition, it's highlighted, and I found in my uh, political work and uh, grassroots work, this very, very helpful for myself. So what the spiritual tradition, the Buddhist tradition has highlighted um, are two things. One is motivation. And what I mean by motivation is not only, as I said earlier in the talk, that you and I look into our motivations, what's really going on with us in what we do, and correspondingly, not only are we looking at what is going on with us, but if the relationship to the event seems quite unsatisfactory. There's another key concept here. If the relationship to the event, our relationship to the event seems quite unsatisfactory, we are habituated, we're mechanical, we're agitated or whatever, and we notice that's going on with ourselves, one of the questions we do really have to ask ourselves is, do I really want to change? What's the use of day in, day out, persistently being tired, bored, dis disinterested, negative, agitated, or feeling there's something wrong, or overdoing things and doing too much, and uh, trying, trying to be a, a, a Mother Teresa, or whatever, whatever the role model that one has most unfortunately set oneself up with. <laughs> Now what's, the, what's the use of doing that and that kind, kind of, of that if there's an ongoing dissatisfaction, an ongoing unsatisfactoriness? So, of course, in work, in the spirituality of organizing, of course at times some unsatisfactoriness is to occur. But if it's persistent, if you feel the resistance of having go to do that job one day to the next, then is the intention, is the motivation there to change? Is it there to change? 
So it's, it's got the continuity through it, through the different circumstances, and there's no joy, fun, equanimity, accommodating, or whatever going on. Am I really interested to change? The other factor, also born out of the tradition there, is when we speak of change, it's it change itself, some people are preoccupied with change for change's sake. The person looks around and the person says, moves into an office or to a new job or a new situation. And of course, when one moves into a fresh situation, very easily one observes all that one could do. So the package of my ideas move in and then everybody else is supposed to be so spiritually minded that they immediately drop years of their work and their way of doing things and say, oh, please, tell us you're so wise. <laughs> and then one wonders why in moving into a situation, why the people in it suddenly start being tight and tense and resentful and say, well, who's this outsider who hasn't worked, spent any time in the ranks, who's coming in and thinks that she or he knows what has to be done and what has to be organized. And this goes on a great deal, and no wonder there's so much sour relationships in, in work, in industry, in social activities, in organizations, and, and so forth. So if change is going to come, one of the principles along which it has to come has to be on trust. So what's going to make trust in a way that people say, I trust this woman, I trust this man, I trust these people. What's going to help that invisible network of trust really be established? I don't think it comes just by laying a number on people. I think that's the fastest way to lose trust and once gone it takes a, an incredible undertaking and commitment of love and kindness to re-establish trust. <coughs> so how you, the being which comes, not the knowledge again, but the being which comes into a situation, the being matters and the knowledge is the servant of the being and not the other way around. Sometimes, and this again in, in the... Uh, I'm not putting a promotion here for the, the, the Buddha here, but uh, he does have a, a little wisdom in some places. Uh, and in... <laughs> I'd be the first to go to hell, I can tell them. So, one of the things which he pointed out, which woke his mind and heart up, which really woke him up, and that was that when we're considering change, we need to consider it in relationship to, not just for its own sake. And remember, we live in a society obsessed with change for its own sake. Fashion industry, new technology, new this, new that. It, it's an obsession. It's an obsession born out of the desire of producing and consuming. And we're just, we're, we're servants of it, we're slaves to it, we're we're victims of it, and we need as much protest about that as any other form of uh, victimization. And what we see in our uh, relationship to change, what the Buddha has said again and again, frankly he said it ad nauseum, that in, in this relationship, <laughs> it's change in relationship to what is unsatisfactory and what is suffering. That's the priority. That's a priority for change. And that means that in situations, firstly, <coughs> to recognize what's unsatisfactory. What's unsatisfactory <coughs> is not sometimes... Could you turn the, the sound down over there? Right. Sometimes it's not so much that the considerations of unsatisfactoriness particularly have to be addressed to all concerned, clearly, but all concerned means a, a real care and support for those who have little say. 
those who have little influence. That includes, of course, the environment, whose only voice uh, is humanity. It includes the creatures of the earth, uh, and in the air, and, and in the water, and the seas, and beneath the land. It includes human beings who have little voice in our world. And now, so I think our, <coughs> our <coughs> sympathies and our support for those people and the suffering which comes through having no opportunity to, be, to speak in this world, that needs to be heard, heard loud and clear. So when we're thinking of change, I feel that change has to be considered in relationship to where the suffering is and to touch the hearts of us where that place emerges, where that suffering emerges. But this is where the validity, I think, of knowledge comes in and the very important dimension of it. It's one thing to have an awareness in the spirituality of organizing which says this is unsatisfactory, this is suffering, this is unfair, this is unjust, this is imbalanced, or whatever the language. <coughs> but, as the Buddha says, not only to know the, that major truth of life, or noble truth that it is called, but what are the conditions for it? What gives support to it? What is actually happening that generates a situation, the effect of, or the result of, it, that it's suffering? So if we just come in, as it were, with an awareness of the major truth of suffering and we just complain about it, I don't think we've gone deep enough into the circumstances and what we need to explore deeply enough to see well, what are the conditions and to find ways collectively to explore those conditions and to see if we change the conditions, the suffering goes. And that's where knowledge and reflection and exploration and discussion and meeting matter, so that we see the conditions, and sometimes when we see the conditions, what's necessary for us is to be able to go even deeper and to explore the way to change those conditions. What will change the conditions? So one has in the, the, the spiritual framework what is called the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness, the conditions for it, the cessation of it, and the means, the way to the cessation of it. And that those kind of principles and the spirituality of organizing, I think, truly need to be borne in mind and not just transferring social conditioning into change for change's sake. In that, sometimes there are, inside of ourselves and in others, there is, of course, the various expressions of the thick-skinned element. The thick-skinned element is um, those uh, human beings who, to put it rather simply, who are saying, they won't say it, of course, but they implied, they would say, um, I've made up my mind, uh, don't confuse me with the facts. And this kind of mind state which, uh, which arises means that at times we see there is suffering, we see the conditions for it, we see what the end of it is, and we see the ways, the means towards the, uh, towards the end of it, and there is some agreement, maybe widespread agreement, however, one person, I'm almost tempted to say the one at the top, but it's not always the case, one person or two people or a, or a clique, large or small, is fixed in the position. Fixed. You know, the, the, the view is carved in concrete. And nothing whatsoever, all the kindnesses in the world, and all the wisdom, and all the clarity, and all the insight, and all the expertise, and all the presence, and all the being, it doesn't, that's, this is thick-skinned model, it just <laughs> doesn't touch anybody. It just, it just, just doesn't, doesn't register for um, um, a moment. So then one goes and does another retreat and thinks, well, maybe that would change it. And one goes back and it's still just as it was when one left. This is, this is thick, thick skin. So in situations like that, if one says 
this person or these people stop everything from happening. I think the danger is with us that we, we transfer immense power to that person or persons. In a way, we are conspirators in it. We are, we are actually believing that he, she or they who are fixed up their minds, fixed and insensitive to the pain and suffering which is being generated through the forms of action or behavior, that we, we got the idea that we can't do anything because of them. And in a way, we are subscribing to them. We are buying into them. We are giving them the authority because we say we can't do anything because of them. And if in our life and in our actions and in our services we think that is the truth, it's going to bring a reaction from us. It has to. And the reaction is frequently to attack back in all the various ways of attacking can come, or to defend and withdraw, or withdraw. Because we got the, the view, in those persons, or person, lies inherently in them the cause and the effect. Nothing can be done unless they change. That's giving, implanting cause and effect into a person of persons. It's tragic if we do that. I think this is a tragic error of perception. People do not have that inherent power. Power lies in the will of all of us. So supposing we really look at that and say, I'm not, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to see any human being on this earth as having some inherent power and control. If, I, if I've come out of that mythology, because I just don't believe that's the case, then my perception and my vision of things is going to be bigger. I'm going to be looking and looking wider. This, this person or that group or whatever, they're not going to be a shadow in my life. Because I see, I see far greater than where he, she, they are, or myself if I am with the power, or supposedly whatever. So now, so now looking, the typical ways that we communicate, the typical ways that we speak about a person in their role, really needs to be addressed. And every time that you or I speak in a way which gives some real power to somebody, I'm afraid we are subscribing to the status quo and we, we are believing in it, therefore we uphold it. And it's tragic when we do that. It's a tragic because we can't see further than what our thought tells us. So finally, in our explorations as a, and in our way of uh, being in the world, as I mentioned previously, to the, the meditative awarenesses in life, the grounding, that whole sense of presence in life truly matters, realizing that knowledge is to be the servant of, of presence, the servant of being, looking into the dynamics of interrelationship, interconnectedness, and all that that means in that, and where there are differences, seeing where the suffering factor is, where the conditions are, the end of, and the way to the end, and applying and exploring those kind of principles and awarenesses in a way which keeps the whole process alive, keeps the exploration alive. And I think that process and exploration, we bring out the best of ourselves. We bring out a, a liberated awareness, a, a way of awakening to the way things are. There's no withdrawal, there's no escapism, but we recognize that how we are, how you are and I are, as a human being in this world, makes the difference. And that's, the, I think, the great, wonderful teaching of spirituality, that the presence of being in life and ex the exploration of that truly makes a difference. And it makes a difference in a way that we can be steady 
not perfectly, but steady through the different situations in life because we've really taken time to be still, really taken time to let silences touch us, really taken time to sit on the earth and be aware and conscious and, and in touch with. And then out of that comes their action and the action is not bound to cause and effect. We're not a prisoner anymore to cause and effect thinking because the vision has, has sprung free from it. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide with wisdom and compassion. So let us have our two or three quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.